and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we focus on IWF's policy focus, stopping the epidemic of violence in American cities. We'll get into the reasons why many U.S. cities saw murders spike by over 30% and outline the steps we can take to curb the nationwide violence. Joining us to discuss it is Patrice Anwuka. She is a political commentator and director at the Center for Economic Opportunity right here at Independent Women's Forum. Patrice is also a senior fellow with the Philanthropy Roundtable and a Tony Blankley fellow at the Steamboat Institute. She has worked in policy, advocacy, and communications roles in Washington, D.C. for more than a decade. And prior to moving to Washington, Patrice served as a speechwriter for a United Nations spokesman. Patrice, always a pleasure to have you on She Thinks. Thank you so much, Beverly. I love joining to talk about good policy topics. And as I mentioned, that we're going to discuss this month's policy focus. It's called Stopping the Epidemic of Violence in American Cities. People can go online to IWF.org to download that. I encourage you to do it, but you're going to outline it for us, Patrice. And I, I thought we would start with the, the big picture. So as I mentioned, this month in this policy focus, you outlined that the murders have spiked by over 30% in this country. Can you break down the data for us a bit? Is this, for example, isolated to certain locations or has this been a trend nationwide? So Beverly, uh, big picture, murders and serious crimes are rising across the country. Um, this spike of nearly 30% was largely in U.S. large U.S. cities, uh, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, for example, and the list. Uh, but it wasn't just in those uh, those specific urban areas. We're talking about dramatic increases nationwide in places like Minneapolis where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. And so this is problematic. Not, I mean, certainly these numbers are below the 1990s peak violent numbers that we saw. Uh, but for the people who are the victims of homicide, uh, for the families who are left grieving, you know, for the communities that find themselves, uh, you know, increasingly more dangerous, these numbers mean uh, a diminished quality of life. And so that's why it's important that we have these conversations to understand what's going on maybe what's going on, what's driving it, and then what are the, some of the solutions that can get at these root problems. Yeah, and as we talk about what is actually driving it, just for clarity, we, you talked about the homicides, some murders, which have sadly increased. Where has violence across the board been, not just through 2020, but also to where we are in 2021? Are we talking about an uptick of violence in every single area, so not just the horrific, the homicides, but also when you think of more smaller crimes? Well, we certainly have seen that, that, uh, homicides are up 21%, you know, in these largest cities. But also, I think you're seeing in some mid-sized cities, uh, violent crimes increasing, particularly homicides, but other types of violent crimes, uh, going into 2021. So, um, so definitely homicides, but I do think some other, uh, not, not quite murders, but certainly still violent crimes are rising. So let's get into the reasons why. And you mentioned, Minneapolis. And I think when people think of that, they think of the tragic death of George Floyd. Uh, that's where we saw a lot of protest ignited in Minneapolis, Minneapolis. And I think it also reminded us similarly to the death of Michael Brown in 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri. So would you say, would you pinpoint it on that, that this is where we saw the start of it? Or are we talking about something that has started even before then? Well, interestingly, I do think that uh, the murder of George Floyd 
certainly ignited uh, both passions and tensions around racial issues in, the, in this country, but also, you know, touched off um, we, a massive spike in violent crime. However, crime was rising before George Floyd was killed in May. Um, in cities like Minneapolis, uh, crime had been already on the rise. But what you saw after uh, that, that, that event, you know, citywide murders increased 71%. Shootings, carjackings are up 300%. So um, it, it's interesting because, you know, there, people say, well, obviously that was the, that event was what drove it. Uh, what, but, Bryce, I mean, violence was actually rising before that. And then even after uh, the protests and the, the kind of initial shock uh, and, 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 and just disbelief of what happened with George Floyd passed, uh, crime continued to rise. So, you know, some people have speculated, some analysts have speculated, well, it's because of the pandemic. It's because people were, you know, holed up in their houses or they couldn't find bread and uh, couldn't afford to buy bread and food. Um, but that that even falls apart. That, that argument falls apart as well. Um, what we do think, and what some some others would suggest, and, and a, a great example is um, over at the Manhattan Institute, Ms. Heather McDonald, she talks about something called the Ferguson effect, uh, which is in essence, um, after a very highly publicized murder of a, of a young black, of a black person occurs by a police officer, uh, the narrative that the media runs with and activists run with uh, is that this is an example of institutionalized racism in the police force. Um, and that uh, because of that, you know, uh, there's, this is an example of systemic racism nationwide. And it touches off protests and et cetera, et cetera. And, what you, and, and unfortunately, the narrative also weaves in this anti-cop rhetoric uh, where, you know, um, black people, pe- communities of color are told to distrust police, to believe that every interaction with a police officer is going to leave uh, any black person potentially dead. Um, and, and then obviously then police officers are going to respond to that anti-police rhetoric by pulling back. And so what we really actually may be seeing in terms of in terms of a rise of crime is when police officers pull back on policing, when the community, the relationships between uh, law enforcement and communities are so strained that they're not interacting with one another to either proactively identify um, uh, um, bad, (laughs) bad people uh, or proactively stop crime before it happens. And then, unfortunately, crime happens, and you have other policy changes that could also affect it. But then you it leads to a, a, the situation where we have today. And what I thought was so fascinating about the summer of 2020, which was when the defund the police movement really started, and you saw politicians sign on to that, you saw Joe Biden campaign on that, Democrats had to change their tune because it wasn't popular among the American people. And I think that there's a misperception, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that there is a misperception to think that minority Americans, specifically black Americans, don't want more policing. But doesn't the data show something different, that black Americans desire more policing? They want good policing, and they want a lot of it. They absolutely, the data absolutely does point to that. I mean, across the demographic, across demographics, you see that Americans want uh, more cops, more people walking the beat in their neighborhoods, and that includes black people. Uh, and why? Because a, a, a police presence is a great deterrent to um, to bad bad guys, to people who may want to commit crimes. 
Uh, and then obviously having police within a neighborhood, building those relationships with the, the local uh, storekeepers and shop owners and the neighbors, you know, they're more willing to speak to a police officer when something happens, when, when a crime occurs, so that they can actually solve crimes that happen. It's unfortunate that the Ferguson effect, uh, and we've seen that happen, you know, after with George Floyd and across the country, where that relationship between law enforcement and communities are so strained. But the communities actually want the police officers to be there. Meanwhile, as you, Beverly, you rightly pointed out, these pol- there are a lot of uh, lawmakers and, and, and policy politicians who, you know, think that chanting defund the police is somehow going to make crime disappear or solve the problems in, uh, in, in black and minority neighborhoods. And it doesn't. It actually makes it worse. So, uh, it's, 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 uh, I mean, to say that defunding the police is, um, is a bad policy solution, uh, it's a bad mantra. I mean, that's an understatement. It actually is dangerous. And so what do you say to, to individuals who look at, let's say, the death of George Floyd and say, we need to hold cops accountable who do this? And at the same time, still want to make sure that we have a good police presence. What is the answer to solving with the, this within the police community to make sure that cops are held accountable for bad actions, uh, but that also we are encouraging good policing to take place? Do you think that unions have gone in the way, or what is the way to help help strengthen our police force with good cops and not the opposite? Well, you know, it, this is it's a great question because it's actually something um, that I tackled in another policy focus that just looked at policing in general. And, and absolutely, one of the way, uh, one of the ways that, um, that, that, uh, one of the important, uh, reforms that are needed to, is to ensure that bad cops, people who actually abuse the, their badge, um, who take advantage of their, the, the power they have, uh, to, to, uh, to pursue crime, to hold people accountable, that they themselves are accountable when they do wrong things. And very often, policing and stand in the way. Uh, collective bargaining agreements that have been de- negotiated uh, tend to take control, uh, disciplinary control and actions out of the hands of the local police um, captain. The, per- the person who's heading up the local police department takes those, those decisions out of his hands or her hands and, you know, puts it into the hands of an arbiter who, frankly, may not have the, the best um, who is not necessarily looking out for the, the 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 police force or for the community, but really just to ensure that the uh, a wayward police cop gets to be able to move to another uh, city or another uh, police force and gets to keep their pension. So you know, I think uh, you know when we, when we talk about reforms, we have to identify that the police unions are definitely playing a, a role and not in, in a very good way. I, I'd also say that um, you know this idea that we can. Uh, demean police officers that we can talk about defunding, that we can lay all of the blame for crime in society on their, at their feet, uh, and then expect people to want to go into the profession. Um, it, it, that just does not work. It doesn't happen. And it's unfortunate that so many police forces across the country are dealing with, um, you know, a flood of departures and retirements of, of police officers who are tired of being disrespected and are tired of being blamed for things that they don't do. So yes, we when 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 a, when a police officer does the wrong thing, they absolutely should and need to be held accountable. Um, and sometimes that means uh, their legal penalties uh, attached to 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 their crimes, or they even need to be charged. But that's not always the case. 
And we don't need to paint every single police officer with the with the same broad brush uh, as being racist, um, as being, uh, you know, someone who's just out to get every black person or out to um, to hurt minorities. That is demoralizing. And that is why we see so many police officers leaving forces um, right now. So. You know, there's a host of it, this policy focus, um, which was actually written by uh, one of our good fellows, uh, Rachel Curry. She talks about other, uh, you know, reforms that are afoot, you know, bail reforms, things that sound nice but have unintended consequences that 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 push more people, more bad people back out, out on the streets after they get arrested um, that just discourage discourage really good policing. And so that's what we need to focus on. We need to ensure that, you know, communities can be protected, that there that there's good policing going on, and that we are not just falling for the narrative anytime uh, a high-profile uh, murder or um, shooting or something like that happens. I think you bring up a good point. There is obviously the policing aspect, which we need to look at. But then you talked about things like bail reform. And, and we could take a look at the criminal justice system and, and look at people who are incarcerated and how we handle that. And one of the things I wonder, just because this was signed into law under the Trump administration, it was the First Step mm-hmm. Act, which was a bipartisan yeah. push for criminal justice reform. And some have pointed to that and said that is to blame for what we're seeing today with the increase in crime. What do you say to that claim? Is there any truth to it? And do you view that as separate than some of the bail reform measures that we've seen that haven't led to good outcomes? Yeah, I absolutely want to separate that from the bail reform efforts uh, or, or reforms that we've seen. Um, you know, letting someone out for, you know, for sla- giving them a slap on the wrist for things like stealing for larceny for burglary is not going to help them become rehabilitated. The, what the First Step Act does actually, though, is fo- focus on ending recidivism um, by ensuring that people who are serving their time are actually, once they get out, they're able to get access to jobs or to work, to be employed so that they don't go back into the, the penal system. Uh, it also did deal with uh, with some low-level drug offenders um, and uh, looking at, you know, whether there's whether the penalties are too high. That's that's different, uh, and it, it touches on the idea of mass incarceration. Uh, but this policy focus does explain a little bit more behind mass incarceration, who's been locked up uh, during the dr- war on drugs, and how or why um, those are not necessarily the people that are being let out by the First Step Act, or um, or or that you know uh, you know when you talk about looking at the the penalty whether the penalty fits the crime. Um, whether that's actually helpful or harmful. So, you know, it's a little bit more in-depth, uh, hard to just explain in a couple of minutes, Beverly, but I, the, the point is um, there, those are two conversations that we should have. One is, you know, who do you lock up and how long do you lock them up for? And separate is, well, once they've served their time, you know, how do we ensure that they have the tools they need so that they don't have to go back in? And I think, uh, you know, I think we all, it's a bipartisan effort when we look at both sides, when we look at the, the recidivism side of it. But I think on the, the, the front end, who gets locked up and whether they're, you know, how long they get locked up for, that's, I think, where there's a lot more disagreement. And, and you can have some, frankly, bad policies that are leading to the rise in, in crime that we're seeing today. And I think when we have these episodes where we focus on a specific policy area, this would be such an important one. I think people ask, okay, 
You have great ideas, Patrice. That sounds wonderful. Is anybody doing that? Meaning, or is anybody doing anything about an elected official? What are we seeing on the local level? Do we see mayors and cities changing their tune? For example, we we see the video in San Francisco, the videos that come out of people just walking in and stealing from the shelves of Walgreens. And Walgreens are having to shut down their doors. It seems right now that there isn't a lot of change happening to try to curb the violence. Are there people out there trying to change it? And what does that look like? I do think there are people who are working on the ground uh, trying to change things. Uh, They're up against a system, uh, an interesting system, uh, particularly uh, judges. They're up against uh, elected officials, many of whom in in a lot of uh, liberal cities, you know, think that the way to help minorities in an equitable way is not to punish them when they do wrong uh, and that's not the right approach or or to demonize police and and to you know and and then expect that you know police are just going to sit there and take it but not you know either not effectively police or not or or just not retire early as we're seeing them do so you know I, i think that there are groups um whether you're talking about mothers who are the um whose children are lost to gun violence uh and and wanton street violence that are coming together, trying to bring police, local police to the table, along with community leaders to sit down and figure out how do we reach these kids who are killing each other's on the, each other on the streets? You know, how do we bring mentorship into the picture? Um, so, so that work is being done. Unfortunately, it just doesn't, it does not get the headlines uh, compared to when a member of Congress, uh, you know, goes back to her hometown and, and talks about how dysfunctional the police department there is. Um, and Beverly, let me just add in a, an additional layer of complication, COVID-19 vaccines. We are seeing across the country police forces losing police officers, those who are unvaccinated or choosing not to disclose their vaccination status whatsoever. So that's, that's a whole other conversation probably for another policy focus um, around these vaccine mandates. But uh, it's, it's, it, I, I do think we're going to head to a point where so many communities get and individuals get affected by the rising crime that they that they're going to rise up and tell their local officials, listen, cut it out, figure get this thing figured out where it works, and then let's try to replicate it where we are. Uh, I, I think it's going to reach that boiling point and in cities like New York, I think it's already hitting. Um, and, and, and I think we're going to continue to have to see, frankly, a little bit more pain until the realities of bad policies uh, become overturned. And, and so much of that comes down to elections and how people voting yeah. and determining who they want in, throwing people out that they've been in, unhappy with. And that is when those running for office and those in office start listening and start changing their tune. I want to ask just one final question for you before you go, Patrice. And that is for those listening who say, look, yes, I'm going to vote. I want to make sure that the issues I care about, that I'm going to vote for those. But is there anything I can do in the meantime? So those who are concerned about violence in the cities, obviously they should read the policy focus. Go to IWF.org to read (laughs) Stopping the Epidemic of Violence in American Cities. But is there anything that you can encourage people to do in their local communities, whether that's supporting the police in some way or anything at all that you can suggest? Absolutely, uh, Beverly. Number one, I I believe it's just just being uh, courteous and, and thankful to Law enforcement, you know, a police officer, when you see them, thanking them and letting them know that you support, you know, their presence in your community, it, it goes a long way. Um, and just reminds police officers that, you know, not everyone believes the narrative, uh, but that their role is important. 
Number two, I think we need to find those groups out there that are actually doing the hard work of bringing police officers and communities together to figure out how to address violence, how to, what are the root causes, and how do we get to young people, you know, who are, who are killing themselves for no good reason. And, you know, a great organization, Voices of Black Mothers United, um, this group, I've, I've talked to some of their, their, one of their spokespeople. You know, these are mothers who've lost their children to wanton street violence, and, and they're trying to bring communities together, community leaders, uh, together with police to figure out what are the programs that work, how do we reach these kids um, so that they don't have to get into the system and fall into, you know, the kind of life of crime. Um, that's there. That, this is not the only group that's out there. I, I know that there are many others, but there are groups across the country that are looking for support, that are just looking for people who are willing to help amplify their message. You know, and then number three, you know, we have to be good citizens, and, and part of that is at the ballot box. And so, you know, I think it's, it's incumbent on us to, you know, figure out what are, you know, who are our elected officials and what are their policies and whether their policies really support public safety or undermine public safety, and then make our decisions based on those on that question. And what that just reminded me of, I saw a great news story on a group of men called Dads on Duty, which patrol the school in Louisiana in their city, and the crime in that school has gone down just because dads show up and are present, Mm. laugh with the kids, correct them if they do something wrong, and just having their presence there has changed the way things are at that school. And so I just think that's a great example of people just stepping up and saying, let's do what we can do on our own and just make sure our kids are okay. So Dads on Duty, check them out. They're based in Louisiana. Um, really great story on them. And Patrice, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this month's policy focus, Stopping the Epidemic of Violence in American Cities. It is always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Beverly. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.